Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 37. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Have you ever noticed how there are certain stories that require a certain setting? Let me give you an example. One of my favourite ever series to binge watch is The West Wind. It's a political drama about a fictional president called Josiah Bartlett and his two terms in office. Now, that sort of story needs to take place in the White House. You need to have a certain amount of the, the footage, the dialogue, the conversations that happen take place in the Oval Office. And would you know, that's exactly what you find. The Oval Office, that famous room and the corridor surrounding it, are exactly where most of the action takes place in that show. In a similar sort of way, there are certain settings that when you see them, you sort of know almost immediately what sort of story it is that you're encountering. Let me give you another example. Think of the Wild West. Saloon doors, tumbleweed, horses hitched up to banisters. You kind of see that and you know that somewhere in the story there's going to be a, a group of out-of-town gunslingers coming in and causing hassle for the locals. And the responsibility is going to fall on the shoulders of some rough but deep-down kind-hearted sheriff to, to send them on their way and to put everything right. Certain stories require certain settings and certain settings suggest to us certain stories are about to unfold. As we begin, Luke's well-researched retelling of the story of Jesus, things like setting, things like family history, even the professions of the characters involved are going to play a really big important part. But before we even go to Luke, let's just take a moment to think about where we're expecting to go. Who is it that we're expecting to meet in Jesus' story? 
Because remember, the story of Jesus isn't the start of the story. There's a lot that's gone on before we get to Jesus. It's a bit like when you rocked up to the cinema to see the first Lord of the Rings film and you met Bilbo, you met Gandalf, you found yourself in the Shire. You see, the Lord of the Rings films are sequels to a bunch of other tales and when we encounter those characters and places, we already are supposed to know them. Luke, in retelling the story of Jesus, is carrying on a story that's been running for centuries. It's a story that starts in Genesis and won't be finished until the closing chapters of Revelation have been realised. It's the story of waiting for a king. A king who would come and rescue his people from the clutches of their enemy. And in the story, to begin with at least, God is the king. But the people ask for someone else. Something and someone that makes more obvious sense to them. To have a person like the nations around them. Someone who is the biggest, the strongest, the brightest, the bravest, the wisest. They reject God and pursue what seems right in their own eyes. And later it becomes apparent that not only have they abandoned God as their king, but they've abandoned God as their God as well. And in fact, the vast majority of people we meet in this story serve only to drag the general population further and further away from where they're supposed to be. But in the middle of all of that, in the middle of all of the tragedy, there's always hope. There are always promises. There's always this faint possibility that the original king, the original God, was going to put, a, put an end to it all, was actually going to pull all things back together and make everything new once more. If there wasn't hope, I guess, if there wasn't that promise, if there wasn't that faint possibility, no doubt we'd have given up before the story had even started. Now that is where we are when we begin this particular chapter, when we begin with Luke's help to discover perhaps, or maybe even to rediscover the true story of Jesus. We're waiting, we should be waiting for a rescuer. We are waiting for this long-promised, long-forgotten king to come back and to kick our enemy in the teeth, whisk the people back to where they belong. So here's a question for you. Where do you expect all of that to take place? If this was a film, where would you expect to be if that story was about to unfold? You'd expect, I think, to be in the seat of power. The seat of power both in royal terms and religious terms. As luck would have it, they're the same place in the story of the Bible. Right there in the thick of it, you'd expect to be in Jerusalem. Even you'd expect to be in the temple, God's palace. And that's exactly where we are when we begin the story with Luke. Only if you read along with me, you'll see that something's not quite right. 
In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the priest, by the way. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. You see, we're right where we're supposed to be. We're ready and waiting for the action to unfold. Everything is going to plan. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the temple. We're with this godly man who is doing this this godly thing in being a priest. Except, well, those of you who are following along in your Bible will have noticed that I missed a verse. It says this, They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Something's not quite right. If these are the people, and this most certainly is the place, then what's going on? Quick sidebar. There isn't actually too much to worry about. In fact, if you know the first part of the story very well, then you might actually see this as a sneaky little Brucey bonus. You see, in God's story, He's got this habit of finding people to work with who, humanly speaking, naturally speaking, shouldn't be part of what's going on. He's got a habit of finding people who are too old, people who are too infertile, and to include them in his amazing story. You can go through characters like Abraham and Sarah, for starters. They were well advanced in age. They were unable to have children. But to them, God made this promise that through their children, the whole world would be blessed and put right. And then Isaac is born, a miracle baby. You can throw into that mix the story of Samuel, Israel's last great judge before they reject God as king and ask for a king themselves. His mother, Hannah, likewise, was unable to have children. So she prayed to God and a short time later, a miracle baby was given to her, Samuel. There's even the story of Samson. You know the story of Samson, I'm sure. He's that great, he's that strong warrior. He's the one who's fabulously flawed. He too was a miraculous child given by God. You might even, and I would, say that Moses was a miracle baby. In the story of the Exodus, the Pharaoh, The king, the leader over Egypt, outlaws the birth of baby boys, and yet Moses was born. He did survive, and in fact, he thrived before going on to lead God's people. Now, all of these things serve to show us that how God does things is often totally upside down to how we'd do things. When we're in this story, when we encounter something that's not quite right, we might actually be in the exact place to experience something wonderful, something miraculous, something truly of God. And in Luke's retelling of the story of Jesus, 
That's precisely what's going on because Zechariah, this godly, priestly priest, he's at the epicenter of what God does. And when God is at work, an angel shows up, a messenger, direct from God himself, turns up with the promise of, you guessed it, a miracle baby. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is good news for Zechariah and Elizabeth. No doubt it's something that they've longed for, a child at last. But hang on a minute, something's not quite right, is it? This is supposed to be a story about Jesus about God coming to the rescue, a king coming to find and to gather his lost people. So why are we hearing about somebody called John, who despite having an incredibly impressive CV there, is told to us to be just a precursor, a warm-up act for the real thing? Well, we're not actually given too much time to dwell on those questions because the camera's focus shifts. In fact, the whole film crew have to pack everything up and head off to a new location. And it isn't anywhere that you or I would really want to go. We're transported from that epicenter, the royal and religious focal point, to the backest of backwater villages. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent his angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. So now we're in Nazareth, in Galilee. And to say that that is a place that is looked down upon is an understatement. In John's Gospel, someone puts it like this even. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's almost comedic to suggest that this great epic story of the king coming and rescuing and restoring that a place like Nazareth is going to play any part at all in that story, especially through the life of a young woman who's not even married yet. She's just engaged to a young man. To be fair, he has pretty good pedigree. He's a descendant of David, the greatest ever king. But what are you getting at, Luke? Are you suggesting that David's line is going to carry on through Nazareth? You see, something's not quite right. And yet, sure enough, that same angelic messenger who spoke to Zechariah speaks to Mary. And the, the news is exactly that. A miracle baby is on its way. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. There at last is the name. 
He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Here comes the king. Here comes the long-promised one from Abraham, from David, who's not just going to kick the Romans out, the, the enemies of the people in the immediate sense, but he's going he's gonna to establish a, a throne. He's going to establish a kingdom and he's going to reign over it forever. Forever? A kingdom that, that doesn't end? Can that, can that be right? Can this woman's child reign forever? Something doesn't quite seem right, does it? The story continues. And, well, sure enough, baby number one, John, the precursor, the, the warm-up act, he is born. And he is born to some spectacular fanfare. His dad, in the middle of all of this, has been unable to speak. At last he can speak, and not only that, he can sing. And this is what he sings. You, my child, dear baby John, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's quite, quite the song, quite the calling, if you like. And yet it's still pretty clear that this John, as spectacular as the, the things that he's going to be involved in, he is just someone who's there to prepare the way, to prepare the soil for the sower to come and to scatter his seed. And this is the final, for now at least, word on this John. It says this, The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Hang on a minute. How can he be preparing the way if he's leaving the epicentre and heading off, not just to the wrong side of the tracks, but literally into the middle of of nowhere. And what does that mean for the child who was born out in the wilderness? Where will he be headed? Well, Jesus is at last born in the story in Bethlehem, no less, which may not be as impressive as Jerusalem, David's city, but it is David's hometown. And another hint that he really is the one promised to come and to rescue and to put everything right. Jesus is born. The king has come. Let the people know if there was fanfare and joy and praise and thanksgiving around John, the precursor, the warm-up act, around his birth, how much more the true king? How much more is it time to make a great announcement, a grand announcement? And thank God the angels appear. The angels are back to declare far and wide with a big bang right on cue. This is good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And this will be the sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
but you've guessed it, haven't you? There's something not quite right with this. Because the people who are first let in on this fantastic news aren't those gathered around the temple in Jerusalem to worship. They aren't the sorts of people that you and I would invite to a baby shower or a christening. They are shepherds. They are lowly. They are smelly. They're often morally questionable people. They are shepherds who hear this good news being declared, the king has come, who are told to go and to see and to worship. And they're told to go and to see and to worship a king who has been laid in a feeding trough. As I make my way through Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, I feel a sense of one step forward and two step back. Just to round things off in this upside down adventure, we have the one Jesus born in the wilderness heading off to Jerusalem. It's like between John and Jesus are trading places. Jesus is taken to the temple in keeping with the customs of the time and another elderly priest catches sight of him. We read this, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. Hang on a minute. What did you say? Salvation has come. Yes, the rescuer is here for the people of Israel, of course. But what's that about being a light of revelation to the Gentiles? Are you honestly suggesting that this comeback king, this descendant of David, isn't just going to rule and reign over his own people, but incorporate all the peoples of the earth? If you're not careful, Luke, in how you're retelling this well-researched story, you're going to totally and utterly discredit yourself before you've really gotten going because it all seems so not quite right. Luke said, I'm writing this so you can be certain. And yet the whole story so far, from our perspective, reeks of something not being quite right. The one at the epicenter heads off to the wilderness. The baby announced as king to the world is laid in a stinking feeding trough. The one who spoke the universe into being, if you kept on reading, gets a, a talking to from his parents for not letting them know where he is. It just all seems a little bit off, doesn't it? But here we are at the point at last this morning. Because of course to God, it all makes perfect sense. It's what he's been planning, it's what he's been preparing and doing all along. Here's a truth for us to take hold of and to enjoy. That when God is at work, when God is really at work, it's almost by definition that what he's doing goes against how we would do it. 
Think about it like this. If he's at work fixing all that we've broken and messed up, then isn't what he does going to go against the flow? If he's fixing what we've broken, he isn't going to do it the way we do it. He's not going to follow our wisdom, our guidance, our advice. I've had this experience a lot as someone who's grown up around computers and technology and what have you. When someone has been struggling on a computer, then very often I've been invited in to help. And then I go and I offer my help. I make certain suggestions, maybe I ask certain questions about where things are going wrong. And as I give my help, this has happened a number of times, it's not seemed quite right to the person I'm helping. No, 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 they say. Don't click there. It's when I click here that it doesn't work. And I take a moment, I chuckle to myself and I say, well, yes, when you click there, it doesn't work. You can't do it your way. You've invited me in to fix it. You have to do something different. It doesn't seem quite right to them, but of course that is how things get fixed. And so it appears to us when we read the story ever of God at work, that he's turning the whole world upside down. When we will continue to discover and learn about Jesus, it's going to seem like everything is utterly upside down. But remember, it's us who have first turned the world upside down. In Jesus, God is putting it back right. We're going to read things in Jesus's life his teaching, his actions that seem not quite right to us. In the discussion that he has with his closest followers about power and authority and leadership, he says, do you know what, when people have those in the world, when they have power and authority, they lord it over everyone else. But I'm telling you, if you want to be in charge, if you truly want to be great, then you've got to become a servant of all turns things upside down on their head. He's speaking about his kingdom and he says this, the first, they'll be last. The last are who will be first. When he's speaking about following him, about being a citizen in his kingdom, he says this, whoever strives and struggles to keep their life, ultimately they'll lose it. But whoever is willing to give up their life for me and for my sake, they'll find it and it will never be taken away from them. When he's teaching a group of his followers, he, he utters these famous words, blessed are those who mourn and who weep. He taught us to love our enemies. The things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did, they're almost entirely, utterly upside down to you and I. But it's upside down to those people, when we're honest, who have lost all sense of direction and perspective. It's all on the face of it baffling. We ask, well, can this be the way it unfolds, Luke? And Luke says, with certainty, I've researched it. Yes, it is. And that's an encouragement to us that God truly is work because it doesn't look like how we would have it look, how we'd write the story, how we direct the movie. And so a shift 
needs to happen. A shift needs to happen in us where we stop coming as skeptics, as people who want to have everything in order for them, in line, in, in our straight alphabetical lists. A shift needs to happen that we need to realize that our way of doing things has not worked, will not work, cannot work. That we need God in Jesus to come into our world, into our lives and to disrupt things. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then you're going to find things in his story that seem utterly fantastic. You're going to find things that just don't seem quite right. And that's a good thing. It's not because they don't make sense. It's not because they can't be true. It's because these are things in which God is at work. I say as well, if you are a believer, then you need to recognise this today. That sometimes we try to sanitise Jesus. Though we recognise him as that king, we'd still like him to be the sort of king we want him to be. So we can twist his words, we can twist his actions to make sense in, in a world and in a way that we understand it. No, no, it's you and I that need to be changed. It's you and I that need to be, become increasingly uncomfortable with how the world is. We're supposed to be people who are ultimately uncomfortable, not with how God works in Jesus, but in how we're happy to go along in this world. I've covered a lot of material this morning. We've made our way through big chunks of Luke's gospel. And I hope I've been able to show you that God's ways are not our ways. And that is a good thing. Because our ways have led us nowhere. Our ways have led us to guilt and shame and hopelessness and ultimately death. But here is God, the rescuer, the king, coming shaking things up, doing things in a way that we might never expect or we might expect but feel a little bit uncomfortable with. And I promise you that as we make our way, that this way is the right way. This is how God always has and always will be putting things back right. Not shifting our world upside down, but putting things back right. I encourage you as we make our way through it to trust Jesus. Often that will feel uncomfortable at first. Often that will be jarring, but it genuinely, truly is the right way. Let me pray for us all. Lord God, we thank you for this story. We thank you that Luke didn't choose to change things to make them more palatable for us, to make them easier and more comfortable for us to accept, but he researched and he laid it out exactly as it was. And Lord, that makes it difficult sometimes for us to engage with it but Lord I pray that ultimately that would make it comprehensible to us that you are involved in these things when we get over that initial shock Lord that we will come to see and to give glory and to give thanks Lord I pray that it is with Jesus and him that we become increasingly comfortable and the way that the world is that we become increasingly uncomfortable. Lord, that we wouldn't seek to shape and shove and change and twist Jesus into what we're used to, but through getting used to Jesus, we'd help you'd call us to shape and to change the world that we're in. Lord, we thank you 
that your ways are beyond our ways. Help us to return to you and to that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.